A reading from the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17, verses 22 to 31 from the message. So Paul took his stand in the open space at the Areopagus and laid it out for them. It is plain to see that you Athenians take your religion seriously. When I arrived here the other day, I was fascinated with all the shrines I came across. And then I found one inscribed to the God nobody knows. I'm here to introduce you to this God so you can worship intelligently. Know who you're dealing with. The God who made the world and everything in it, this master of sky and land, doesn't live in custom-made shrines or need the human race to run errands for him as if he couldn't take care of it himself. He makes the creatures. The creatures don't make him. Starting from scratch, he made the entire human race and made the earth hospitable with plenty of time and space for living so we could seek after God and not just grope around in the dark, but actually find him. He doesn't play hide and seek with us. He's not remote, he's near. We live and move in him, can't get away from him. One of your poets said it well, we're the God created. Well, if we are the God created, it doesn't make a lot of sense to think we could hire a sculptor to chisel a God out of stone for us, does it? God overlooks it as long as you don't know any better. But for that, time has passed. The unknown is now known, and he's calling for a radical life change. He has set a day when the entire human race will be judged and everything set right. And he has already appointed the judge, confirming him before everyone by raising him from the dead. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Would you pray with me, please? Oh, God, to wake from sleep into this day is gift enough for thanks. To hear a child's delight in laughter, to sip a glass of clean, cold water, to watch the sunset paint the sky, to have a moment with a friend, to feel the comfort of clean clothing, to form these words that make a prayer are gifts enough for thanks. Open our ears, hearts, and minds to your word for us this day. Amen. Well, tell me a story, said the little boy to his dad at bedtime. Tell me a story and put me in it. You know, there are no stories to which children pay better attention than those in which they play a part. Even as the years go by and the eager child becomes a cool, disinterested teenager, just watch how she perks up when you say, hey, I remember the time that you, and you know adults, we all follow that same pattern as well. All we have to do in here is put pictures up on the screen and everyone will be looking with keen attention, searching in the pictures for themselves or their friends or those they hold most dear. We are most interested in stories when we are in them. So Paul is in Athens, a city where apparently no Christians 
were present and few, if any, Christians had previously visited. In the verses just before our reading, Paul was in the synagogue with his fellow Jewish people. He was in the marketplace daily, and then he was taken to the Areopagus. And in all of these places, he's learning the local culture and teaching people about Christ. And as Acts records it, at least, He seems to have spent the least amount of times in these ministries in the synagogue, imagine. Most of his time was spent outdoors among the people in the varieties of ways people gathered and interacted. So in the Areopagus, when Paul goes to speak, he begins by having found a little niche in their own story. You see, they had one altar dedicated to an unknown God. Just to be sure, I think, that they had all of their bases covered. And Paul takes this notion of uncertainty, this possibility of another God that they hadn't met yet, and announces, I'm going to tell you about this God whom you do not know. I know him. And in the end, the very nature of God would topple all of those others from their columns, tear down all the other altars. But that is not how Paul begins. There once was a sultan who awoke troubled in the middle of the night and he summoned his wizard. What messed with his sleep, he exclaimed to the wizard, was the mystery of what was holding up the earth. Oh, majesty, assured the wizard, the earth rests on the back of a giant elephant. And the wizard's reply pleased the sultan, and he went back to sleep. But then, drenched with cold sweat, his sleep was interrupted again, and again he summoned his wizard. What's holding up the elephant, he demanded of the sleepy wizard. And the wizard looked him in the eye and said, well, the elephant stands on the back of a giant turtle. And wearily, he started back for bed when he suddenly turned around, saying, And you can stop right there, Majesty, because it's turtles all the way down. So, my friends, I don't think we should get too caught up in the study of turtles. You see, Paul had something to say to the Athenians about what held up the earth and who created it. But he was anxious to move them beyond that study and truly discuss transforming their lives. Because for Paul, you see, the knowledge of God was not just a matter of some idle speculation, as was discussed in much of Greek philosophy. Knowledge of God for Paul is to have an active, dynamic relationship with God. To know God is more than to simply recognize God. It is to serve God, to praise God, to obey God. So to know God for Paul involved a very personal and profound relationship. And hold on a minute, because there is just a little bit more. It's the absolute awe in which a believer stands before God. Scripture sometimes calls it fear. But it's not the fear of which we usually speak. It's a profound awareness of the complete holiness and absolute power of God. This God whom I proclaim, Paul says, lives in no shrine and needs no, nothing that we could give. God has created everything in its place. Before this God, the Athenians should repent. 
Because though God is the creator, indeed, God is not far from each and every one of us. You know how easy it is to be fearful of the things that are at hand, rather than to be in fear or in awe of that which has genuine and ultimate power over us. There's an incident that took place during the Battle of Antietam during the Civil War. Union soldiers were crossing a farm to attack the Confederate battle line drawn in a sunken road thereafter called Bloody Lane. And the Confederate fire was deadly, and the Yankees, they were falling everywhere. And as they were passing the farmhouse, some of the Confederate bullets struck the beehives. And soldiers recalled how in the middle of deadly, deadly gunfire, they were running in circles trying desperately to abort, avoid an angry swarm of bees. How easy it is to fear a minor pesky danger rather than a greater, less immediate one. Jesus said, don't fear those who can kill the body and not the soul. Rather, fear him who can kill both body and soul in hell. And further, don't be afraid. God watches over the sparrows. You are of more value than many sparrows. And we learn that the truest, most meaningful thread that runs through all of the events and relationship of our lives is that which is lived within the story of God's love for us. Our awe of God keeps us respectful of the jealousy of our God, and our knowledge of our God allows us to trust in God's grace. Surely such a God deserves our full loyalty, undivided praise, and complete obedience. How foolish of those Athenians to have a whole Parthenon of gods, right? We still even know their names, Zeus, Hera, Kronos, Aphrodite, and the rest. These gods had all their own sphere of influence, their own particular interests, their own points of contacts with human beings. It just seems ridiculous. We would never worship so many different gods, would we? Martin Luther wrote in a quote, To have a god simply means to have something in which the heart puts all trust. So if we're honest, folks, we have many gods competing in many different ways at different times with our loyalty to the God whom we know in Jesus the Christ. It's not that we want to ignore God. God is there too. God's in charge of most Sunday mornings, weddings and funerals, babies being born and life after death. But it's not enough for God. God demands it all. Our God will not for a second remain happy in a hall filled with other gods. It seems as though all of our lives we will be struggling to know what is the right choice, what is the faithful course, what is the most loving thing to do. But the lasting and true gifts of God to us, the gifts that put us forever into the story, are the gifts of the knowledge and fear of God. And we live in awe of God's holy, awesome power and trust in God's endless and unconditional love for each and every one of us. And finally this morning, 
Rosemary Radford Ruther is a church historian, and she says that there are two things that the church must do. One is to pass on our tradition from one generation to another. Tell the story of Jesus to your children and your children's children. But that's not all, says Ruther. There is a second thing that the church must do. Be open to the winds of the spirit by which the tradition comes alive in each generation. And that is what we do today with our confirmants. How wonderful to see so many young folks stand in our midst and confess Jesus. Just imagine how through them the tradition will come alive in their own generation. And that is even deeper for us than memory. Praise God. Amen.